Hello and welcome to Dad Pod Season 2. We're back, we're bad. Osh is wearing his Dame Edna glasses. We're in isolation from each other, but making this happen via technology. Osh, how you going? I, I'm disappointed. You started in the Lethal Weapon 4. I know, but then I realised it was, it was a minefield. It was problematic for me to continue with that quote. <laughs> Extraordinarily brilliant bit of Joe Pesci work there. I'm good today, yeah. My Dame Edna glasses, come on, man, they're Dresden's. Give me a oh, break. Oh, yeah, sorry, that's much better. <laughs> I'm hip. I'm bloody, these are recycled, these are made out of old beer keg lids. I'm 43 this year and haven't bought glasses yet, but the time is coming. Like, I am noticing now that I cannot read things over a distance. Like, if I have to, which in this era of, like, uh, public service announcements and uh, government-issued... <laughs> warnings it's probably better that i can read things over a distance oh so things far away you can't see very well yeah uh, i can't see anything from my hand to my face i can't see right so if it's closer than my hand to my face it's a viscous blob which includes my newborn son <laughs> <laughs> welcome to dad bod where two guys just talk about their failing bodies as they try and raise children. <laughs> well, we did come to fatherhood later in life, Charlie. You, uh, we've, you know, we made that choice, but we're not uncommon in, in men that do that. And in season one, it was more of a kind of talking through as we go adventure, yeah. almost like an audio blog of our, yeah. our adventures. And now, now in season two, we've come back and gone. You know what? That whole idea of making a podcast for other dads that was full of things that would be really handy for us, I don't know if we kind of hit the brief. So we're going to have a second lap of the first, the pregnancy, the pregnancy part. And uh, last week we talked about two stripes on the stick. Now what? Episode two, to tell or not to tell, because that is ultimately the big question, right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there, there are a few reasons why you may want to tell or may not want to tell. I mean, obviously, for personal experience, you know, we didn't want to tell because I felt like it was so early and, you know, uh, things can happen, complications, miscarriages are very common. And so we sort of were like, well, let's wait till the absolute, you know, last possible moment to let people know. We'll wait till the, we're at least past the first trimester before we'll let people know. But you didn't do that. No, we didn't. I was prepared for that because it's actually this whole idea, this, this 12-week rule is kind of new in the Western world. In fact, it's only been around, the 12-week rule has only really been around since ultrasound as a technology oh. has been available. It, it used to be, back in the day, people would say we're pregnant when the mother first felt the baby flutter in their stomach somewhere around 15 to 20 weeks when the, they could definitely feel there was something happening, mm. then they would say. So like way later, way, way, way later, but it's only since uh, ultrasounds have been around that 12 weeks is, has, has been the time because I guess people want to, if, like you mentioned, if, if things don't go right, people want to have the opportunity and the chance to not have to bear that out publicly, which I understand because one in four pregnancies in Australia, one in four pregnancies ended miscarriage. And at eight weeks, the chances of uh, a live baby, it's horrible the way the statistics are written, mm. but this is what they call it. <laughs> The research shows that at eight weeks, the chances of having a live baby are 92%. At 12 weeks, they come up to 97%. So, I mean, 
I understand why people go 12 weeks. And in fact, that's what I was prepared for because that's what I've heard everybody else doing around me. And mm. that's what people I I knew who had told me, I have to tell you something secret, but don't tell anyone for six more weeks. Yeah. We're pregnant, you know. However, I'm married to a Fijian lady. And in Fijian culture, the moment you miss the first period, everyone knows. Right. And they have a thing called the coconut wireless, which means as soon as you tell one relative, then 47 relatives of connection later, that person will text you and say, congratulations. Right. Because it, it goes from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And culturally, why they do that is because then if it doesn't work out, everyone is there for you because it's a very interconnected, family-dependent, supportive culture, that Pacific Island culture. And to be honest, I was so prepared to do it privately and secretly, mm. but I was so grateful that we didn't mm. because even though Audrey was older, she was 39 when we had Wolfie, and, you know, you look at the charts of what <laughs> is expected, that's, you know, there's some pretty serious complications that are quite likely when you uh, get pregnant at 39 years old as a woman. Mm. So I was, I was like, well, if this doesn't work out, we have all these people who can be there for us and we won't have to do it alone. And that gave me extraordinary comfort to know that. But that was, that was our choice. That's what we did. Well, I just think there's also, um, I'm not sure what it was like for you, Osh, but I, I feel like society puts pressure. Firstly, the question is, when are you getting married? And then mm-hmm. when you get married, then the question is, when are you going to have kids? And my argument with that was always, it's all well and good for me to say, I want to have kids because I'm not the one who has to carry the baby. I'm not the one who has to take a significant amount of time out of my life, out of my career. You know, this is something that Gemma and I were going to do as a partnership. It was a 50-50 kind of deal. And you're right. Once you get over 35, I mean, the term geriatric pregnancy, <laughs> it's, it seems so incongruous because we do not feel geriatric. You don't look geriatric. Certainly Audrey doesn't. But that is how you're classified in terms of once you get over 35, it's considered a geriatric pregnancy. <laughs> it's the worst name ever. It sort of conjures up just images of being like a blue rinse set and a walking frame, just dropping out babies <laughs> as you make your way into the nursing home. Yeah. But because of that, you know, I think that we were sort of acutely aware that, okay, well, we now move into that high-risk category. But also we were kind of resentful of the people putting pressure on us before that, you know. I mean, especially friends of ours who work in the medical profession. Well, you know, you, if you're serious about having kids, you need to do it before you're 35. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be barren and dried up. And part of me is always like, get fucked. <laughs> like it is absolutely <laughs> none of your business. And if we want to go for a high-risk manoeuvre, if we want to try this later in life, then that is completely up to us. And that's the other thing about whether or not you tell people or, or not is no one gets a vote in this situation. It's up to you and your partner. And I understand that, you know, there can be family or, or cultural pressures or, or that kind of stuff, but you need to do what is right for you guys. And again, speaking personally, what was right for Gemma and I was that we waited because it was, we wanted to focus on our careers for a period of time. And then when we decided we wanted to start a family, it felt like a very personal decision and very personal choice. And we just wanted to take our time before we let people know. The other thing that we need to be quite clear about is that my wife, her career as a professional hair and makeup artist and a freelancer at that, it's a highly skilled job. It's a much sought after job. It's a job that only very few people are good at, at the level that she's good at. 
yet it's not the kind of job where if any one of her production managers found out she was pregnant, they would go, oh, well, we won't hire you. Mm. Because there's, you know, as well as I do, we've been in that many makeup rooms. There's always pregnant people in a makeup room. Cause, and that's the reason that she, this is a woman, Audrey dropped out of biotech at uni when she had Georgia, our eldest, and she chose makeup as a career because it's a job that I can get paid for eight hours work by doing two, uh, this or whatever. This will get me great flexibility around being there for my kid. But if Audrey worked, say, for example, in an office environment, back when we had offices, uh, we're recording this in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, <laughs> there's definitely pressure on a women who are seeking promotion. It shouldn't be the way, Charlie, but it is. Mm. There's pressure on women who are seeking promotion or seeking to climb higher in whatever corporation or industry they're working in that are, oh, why would I give this promotion to someone who's about to go away for six months or nine months? So to keep it quiet makes complete sense. I get it. Yeah. And also the idea of waiting until you feel secure in your career or secure in your job, that you can take that time off without risk of losing your job completely or being relegated when you come back. A bit of good news, Osh. For the first time in more than three decades, the number of women having babies in their 30s is higher than women having babies at younger ages. In fact, in 2016, a study in Denmark found that older mums tended to be more patient than their younger counterparts and also tended to raise more well-adjusted children with fewer behavioural problems. Boy, that is fabulous. Well, that's just come some, some socialist, utopian, <laughs> Denmarkian kind of thing here, mate. That's not the real world, Charlie. Well, if I want to push that Scandinavian utopia a bit further, we can go to a study done in Sweden in 2016 that was published in Population and Development Review. It found that despite the health risks often associated with babies of older mums, as they grow up, those kids tend to be taller, yeah. heartier, and better educated than kids of younger parents. Heartier. I love that that's a scientific thing. But isn't it fascinating that this coronavirus pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, in Australia at least, finally, even the most conservative, small government, no emphasis on social welfare government, has gone, oh, right, oh, yeah, free childcare is actually important <laughs> for the economy. Have at you. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean... Look, I obviously this we call this cherry picking. I have uh, picked some facts here that sort of serve my current situation. But I think that if you are at the stage where you're thinking of starting a family, but you feel like you want, you know, you want to wait, there's absolutely no harm in doing that. Like you have to be aware of the biological um, factors that are working against you. But I think there is this kind of Men don't get it as much, but for women, there is this kind of pressure that you need to have it before 35. But I can say, or we can say, we are living proof that that is not necessarily the case. This is true. Though I have done the sums, I know how much running around I have to do to keep up <laughs> after my 16-year-old, okay? When Wolf, my son, is 16, I will be 61. Yep. So... That is now like, well, fuck, I'm just going to have to stay flexible and have to stay fit. It's good, mate. Because it's good motivation. No way. I think I it's great. Do... Think of all the money you're going to save on personal trainers just chasing Wolfie around. <laughs> and from the size it's... of him now, that is going to be a kid who is full of energy. Dude, he's a unit. Oh, my God. We're recording this when he's seven months old, but he's a unit right now. And, um, there's a, a, a mate of ours. She's like, oh, my arms are never as good as when before my baby learned to crawl. 
because they're always carrying yeah. this baby. You got these, these mad guns. She had mad guns from carrying this 12 kilo weight around the whole time. Just a side note, you described him as a unit. This is something I put out on Twitter a couple of weeks ago because I'm a little confused. The term unit, <laughs> it can yeah. be used in two different ways, can it? But it depends on the prefix. If you say someone is an absolute unit, it means they're a, a solid person, right? Yeah. But if you say someone is like a loose unit, it means they're crazy, right? Yes. Okay. Right. It's just checking because sometimes I yeah. hear people use unit, but I'm not sure in what sense they're using it. I think generally, unless it's preceded with loose, it's in reference to the heft of a human. I don't know. I think someone's a bit of a unit. I think that can be also perceived as someone is is just like off their head if you say someone's a unit. He, that person is a unit. I'm pretty sure I've heard it used in that context without loose in front of it. All right. Well, let me just say, Wolfie is a big unit. <laughs> Absolute unit. That's the uh, accepted idiom. He's a solid young man. And the current conversation as well, will he play sevens for Australia <laughs> or will he play sevens for Fiji? Nah, well, in the grand Australian tradition of claiming people as our own when they have mixed lineage, we'll, we'll claim him as an Aussie. He'll be the Russell Crowe of Australia, the uh, <laughs> Neil Finn. <laughs> But Keith Urban. <laughs> we here in our, in our house, Charlie, we're a pretty atheist. We're not uncommon in that there was baptism involved in our own lives, but that was just because it was par for the course in the 70s and 80s when we were we were born. I'm seven years older than Audrey. But when Audrey and I, when when we did get pregnant, we did talk a bit about, I said, I, I don't feel any need to baptize this child into anything. She's like, I don't either. That's fine. And I'm, I'm really grateful she did that because, uh, and I think it's important to have these conversations because you really need to have these chats early, preferably before you, uh, you know, conceive, mm. but definitely early on. Cause I was, I'll never forget Charlie. I was once at a lunch when I was living in Los Angeles and I was sitting across the table from a husband and wife. They were eight months pregnant. They were Australian people living in Los Angeles. One was an actor. I won't say the name. And she said to the husband, we were talking about this exactly. And she goes, oh, well, we'll, we'll baptize him Catholic. And he went, this boy's going to be a Protestant. <laughs> no, no, this boy's going to be a Protestant. She goes like, fuck you, he's Catholic. I'm like, you guys really should have had this chat quite a while ago because this is going to be tricky when you head back to Belfast. I actually, uh, I mean, you bringing this up now is the first time I've even thought about baptism or anything. And I was raised Catholic, but it has never even entered into my brain the possibility of christening or baptizing my daughter. It's just something I... Never even thought of. It's so weird. Of course, that must be a consideration for so many people, especially if you come from an Irish or Italian or, or you know, South American family. That, that's got to be the thing you need to discuss, right? It's exactly the same thing with, like, my father's father was Jewish, so there was no pressure on to circumcise Wolfgang, but... I totally get it. Like there's all kinds of, you know, conversations around religious practices around circumcision in some religions. And these are the sort of things you're going to want to talk about. And you're going to want to talk about them right now. Don't wait until baby's already born before you get into this because you're really getting into it. Did you and Jem talk about, like, let me ask, does Iona have godparents? Uh, we have discussed it, but we haven't made any formal approaches yet. Osh, we're uh, just compiling a shortlist. No, we have discussed, we do have friends that we discussed as being good godparents, but we haven't actually asked them. We haven't done any of that. Apart from registering her name, we have done nothing 
And are we bad parents? <laughs> I'm starting to feel well, like I'm exposed. We haven't had the conversation about, and, and Wolf's seven months old right now, we haven't had the conversation about godparents either, but that's a thing that is formalized at a christening. Right. right? These are, uh, okay. you know, do you reject Satan and all his works, which is hilarious when it happens, and mm. I'll try not to snicker when I see it. But uh, the idea is generally is that if anything does happen to mum and dad, yeah. that these are the people that will be the ones that raise baby. You know, there, there's other names uh, that I've seen for people who do decline baptism. There are other names that I've seen uh, guide parents, right? for example. Ah, yes. Or odd parents. Right. <laughs> squad parents. What's that mean? What's that referred to? <laughs> I don't know. Probably something from Instagram. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm a fairy godfather to a little girl. So, you know, I think these things are important. I haven't uh, been, I haven't asked to be a God, making me think, gosh, that I'm doing something wrong. Not only have I not appointed godparents, I have not asked to be a godparent. I had good godparents. Mrs. Hess, what was her name? Marge Hess. She was my godparent. She used to give me like five bucks on my birthday. And I was like, well, this is pretty good. That's a good arrangement. Was she important in your life? Well, no, not really. Because you've got to remember, Osh, youngest of nine. So by the time yeah. my parents got to me, they'd run out of friends to ask. So <laughs> no, I think the Hesses were good friends with our family at the time. Potentially siblings went to the same schools, definitely the same parish at church. But yeah, I don't think of any particular like uh, importance. I haven't, like, I have not, I mean, I'm, I don't even know where Marge is these days. I had my, my aunt and uncle, because they were the only blood relatives in Brisbane, they were my, my godparents, which was really handy because they were actually really awesome people and they did the job. And as good aunts and uncles slash godparents did, they filled in all the gaps that your own parents don't get across. But I, I found it to be really powerful as a, as a young man growing up to have that secondary input mm. as someone else that I was, I was accountable to or some other person that gave me guidance. Even as I got older, mostly in my, in my 20s, my uncle particularly was really good. I mean, I did used to fantasize as a kid that someone would turn up on my doorstep, a godparent to say, we're taking you away to a Shaolin temple to train you in the mystic arts because you are the chosen one. <laughs> you know, never happened. Never had that godparent turn up. There's still time, Charlie. <laughs> He's played Tony Monero. He's been in Aladdin, but perhaps his greatest role to date is as a father. Adam Fiorentino, welcome to Dad Pod. You're with Charlie and Osha. Hey, guys. How you going? It's probably the hardest uh, role, that's for sure. We've been talking about, in this series of Dad Pod, we're going back into the past because we felt like in the first series it was all very new to us and we're just finding our feet. So we've been uh, looking back at the pregnancy period and discussing the whether or not you tell people within that first three months. Can you remember, uh, did you tell people when you guys found out you were pregnant? How long did you wait? We waited the 12 weeks, pretty much. I think there might have been one or two people that we told at about the nine-week mark, but the majority was definitely after the 12 weeks. Is there no pressure like the, from the Italian family, the parents wanting to know straight away, anything like that? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I think they were just happy to, to finally get a child. Right. It's kind of been on our backs for long enough, so they were just happy with what they got. Did you bring them the first grandchild? Uh, yes, on my, my parents' side, yes. Actually, on all sides, on both sides. Wow. So they were asking, what, constantly every second day? Was there a text? Are you pregnant yet? Well, maybe from my uh, my wife's side of the family, yeah. <laughs> um, I think my dad was more so kind of on our backs about having the kid than mum. And so Hudson's uh, is five now, is that right? Nearly six, mate. Yeah, N six next month. Nearly six. So how, um, how old were you when you guys had him? So I was... 
33. Right. Okay. So Osh and I, uh, we fit into the category of geriatric parents because uh, <laughs> once you get to 35 plus, was it something that you guys had discussed? Was it a, a, something that you'd been planning or was it a, a happy accident? How did it, how did it come along? Yeah, well, um, initially we kind of, I was the one who was, I mean, the thing was too actually, happy to hold off for a while. And then, you know, these six years older than me, so she definitely got to a point where she started to bring up the fact of kind of going, well, if we want to think about this, we should think about it soon. And yeah. we, you know, we were in LA at the time and we just kept putting it off because, you know, as you do, it's like, that movie is around the corner or this is around the corner. So yeah. we kept putting it off. And then it got to a point where we just thought to ourselves, let's not try not to. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just stop the being careful side of things and just see where it goes. And if nature decides that uh, we're to fall pregnant, then so be it. Were there any career issues that your wife had to keep in mind when it did come to telling people? I mean, the biggest thing was, and which she kept doing right up until I think like two weeks before she gave birth, was she was personal training at the time. She was a celebrity personal trainer. So, um, I mean, the big thing through the beginning part of the pregnancy was it was around, I think, Golden Globes time. So in that first three months, she was training like six hours a day, getting up at five o'clock in the morning to be at training at 5.30 and stuff like that. So yes, putting career things on hold for a moment, but at the time we were kind of just not really working as performance as it was. I was busy teaching and doing event management and she was personal training. What about your own career? Like telling people who are casting you in roles, hey, in a year from now, I'm going to be out of action for a month or, or whatever. Were you Were you careful about that? No, not really. I just figured that, you know, we'll work around it. And I think we're at a time where we put our lives on hold so much for our careers that we just kind of went, we've got to do something for us at some point. You know, we can't keep relying on this career thing all the time. So, yeah, the whole pregnancy and the, and the little dude coming along was really a gift for us as opposed to just kind of saying, well, the rest of the world can wait for a moment if anything comes up. That's a really a beautiful way of putting it. I feel like, you know, Gemma and I were much the same. Because in this work of show, <laughs> you know, you sort of, you, you try and leap from one lily pad to the next and you're just never really sure where the next opportunity is and how big that opportunity is going to be. So you're kind of left in this constant state of anticipation where you're just sort of like, I can't commit to this way or that way because, you know, the next job could happen. And sometimes you do lose what you want and your priorities. And I think that's a lovely way you put it, which is like it was a gift to yourself. And I think that you can sort of forget that. that There's so much pressure that comes at you from other people or what you should be doing with your lives or whatever. The fact that you can make this your thing, I think is really important. Absolutely. And I think it's the biggest thing that's going to be your thing than anything else. You know, I mean, I think if you're, you know, you try and be a decent parent, I'm not saying that I'm a great dad by any means, but you try and be a great dad. And I think that kind of puts us ahead of, the ones that aren't, I guess. <laughs> That's what I've had someone kind of tell me one day. Is I was just kind of saying, you know, sometimes I feel like I suck as a dad. I'm just being a crap parent. But he kind of turned around and said, you know, the fact that you even think about that in the first place puts you ahead of the curve. Yeah. Can I ask you both, uh, early on when uh, our female partners get pregnant, there are a whole list of things that they're no longer allowed to drink, no longer allowed to eat. And as the, the partners... People often go, well, all right then, I won't eat cheese too, or I won't. Did either of, when it came to, say, for example, drinking, did either of you guys go, I won't drink, you know, to be in um, solidarity with you? I was given permission to just continue doing whatever, but I think you just by 
natural inclination, you just do less than that. I mean, I think that there was a couple of occasions, a couple of events, like I think at a friend's bucks party or something that I had to go to where I was given like a complete free pass. But the rest of it was just, I think it's just easier if you live in partnership with someone to kind of align your lives along a certain path. Would you agree, Adam? Oh, I just used to just do it in front of her. Kind of lie <laughs> across her lap and, the, and knock back a beer in the middle of the night. So either that or just kind of hide them in the shower while I had a shower. I could find, find beer bottles around beers. the bathroom. Uh, yeah, yeah, you really don't want to be that guy that goes, brilliant, nine months of a designated driver. Pull up to Dan Murphy's yeah, heart, we'll bring the ute. You know? Exactly, high five. <laughs> no, I think Dee was the same. She was just kind of like, babe, have a drink if you want to have a drink. But I just think that general, because your partner's not drinking, you just tend to, yeah, you know, not grab a glass of wine at night because that's usually the fun part is having it with your partner. So you just don't think about it. Because that usually, that's the tell when you're in a social situation. And certainly as a woman in her, you know, anywhere between 28 on, if a woman in a social situation doesn't pick up a drink mm. at, at a party, people go, oh. Yeah. Especially an Australian woman, yeah. Yeah, well, we had a, <laughs> we had a friend's uh, uh, birthday party. We all went away. It's about 20 of us went away down the coast for the weekend, and it was uh, in that first 12 weeks, and it was an overnight thing. We were staying overnight, so I had this big party, and we were all like drinking and dancing and having fun, and Gemma like took herself to bed at like 10 p.m., and the amount of tap dancing I did around, <laughs> you know, what was going on. Oh, we had fish and chips on the way here. She had a bad potato cake, all this kind of stuff. And I, I don't know if it was just everyone was, you know, a bit too wasted or whatever, but I managed to kind of fool everyone. Like, no, when, when we did finally announce to people, everyone who was at that party was like, oh, now it makes sense. You know what, Charlie? Hey, you should consider acting as a career. <laughs> I think we've noticed it with a lot of friends. That's been the tell usually is that if we go out and catch up with friends and all of a sudden someone's not having a beverage, we're like, oh, hang on a second. Mm. That's a more damning indictment on Australian culture than anything. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but it's something that everybody faces. You know, that's usually the first thing that people see. What, what about when it came to uh, baptism or godparents or things? Adam, did you and your wife uh, have that conversation early on? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we did, but we didn't really kind of have to discuss it much. I think we were both of the same mindset. We're both were brought up Catholic and I went to a private Catholic school for my primary schooling and stuff like that. And, you know, we haven't really been to church in a very long time and have stepped away from that part of faith, I guess, as way of putting it. I guess we're spiritual people, but not religious people. So it was a pretty easy conversation for us to just, you know, kind of say that wasn't really our thing. Uh, we designated, you know, that, all right, if we die in a fiery car crash, who gets the kid? We had that conversation. But, uh <laughs> Fiery car crash. It's important. Well, I guess it's that's important, the equivalent that. of the Godfather, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. See? Yeah, because well, I just realised, I mean, Osh brought this up uh, before we got to your call, Adam, and I realised that Jeremy and I have not put any of these things into place. I was raised Catholic as well, but the idea of baptism had never even crossed my mind. I mean, I haven't really been to a church in, you know, maybe 20-odd years apart from like a Christmas or something with my mum to make her feel better. But <laughs> it's funny like that because oh, Gemma was raised pretty much atheist. She did, didn't go to a religious school or anything like that. So it's just never been a consideration for her. But when I think about my nine siblings, not one of them is a practicing Catholic. So it hasn't been an issue for anyone in my family. I mean, what a tremendous investment by my parents, all those exorbitant private school, Catholic school fees, and not one practicing Catholic out of the bunch of us. And three homosexuals. I mean, they really did something wrong. 
I think the fad these days is to get the uh, baptism just so you can get into the Catholic school because it's got a better football ground. Yeah, yeah, 100%. There are definitely people close to me who have had that done. They weren't allowed into the school. They went, oh, really? Oh, hang on. Give us two weeks. (laughs) They went off. The kid did a couple of days of some sort of sit down with a something. They sprinkled some water on its head. Fine, you're now allowed to come to the school that you weren't allowed to come into 10 days ago. Yeah, we've cleansed you of original sin. You're fine. Come in. Well, yeah, exactly. You're fine to move on. You're not going to uh, kind of go to hell. Adam, I'm at least glad that you had the conversation about the fiery car crash because that, I mean, it's these are uncomfortable things to talk about, but it's important that you talk about them. Well, it was kind of one of the first things that we brought up, you know, because I'm just, as Charlie knows, I'm a very practical human being. And even from now, you know, we're quite open speaking about, you know, mortality and all that kind of stuff in front of the kid. <laughs> I mean, you know, when he was about two, we kind of screamed in his face, one day we're going to die. So um, we could get in there early and we can pay for the therapy later. But I think it's been one of those practical things. And I think everyone has to do it. I think, you know, people get a bit scared about, mm. I don't know, if they talk about it, it's going to jinx them or something. But you just got to be prepared, eh? And so the, what's the vetting process for godparents? Are you going for what people who are good friends or people who you think financially can give your child the best life? Just how much money in the bank. Yeah. Just kind of just get it to send, send their statements to us. <laughs> yeah. So you really you are like the private boys' school. You are. Just send us your bank statements before we even consider you. Yeah, I'm going to say to Iona, here's Uncle Rupert Murdoch. He's uh, your new godfather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't care about the sprinkling of the water on the forehead, but yeah. where's the money in the bank? Yeah. I do have to ask this. I am one, Adam, you are, uh, people may not realize it, like you are, obviously you are a a, a very high profile actor in Australia, but you are also someone who makes a lot of bread and butter doing musical theater, of which I'm imagining Mm -hmm. in Australia, there is none at the moment because we can't be in the same room as anyone that we're not living with right now. Pretty much. Are you filling the gap by singing songs to your kids? It's really funny because there's one person in the world who can make me feel absolutely as low as low can be when it comes to my vocal talents, and that's my child. <laughs> he, he rips me every time I go to have a sing. He's always just like, Dad, can you not sing so loud, mate? <laughs> so he's, he's a killer. But he's keeping us occupied, that's for sure, man. I turned to my wife today, and I was just like, we didn't go back for another six months. I don't know if I can keep doing this. <laughs> Well, that is a challenge too. I mean, anyone who follows your Instagram, Adam, would see that you you have a flourishing vegetable garden at the moment. I've been enjoying your updates of uh, the seasonal vegetables that are coming through. Is, is that something that you can uh, get him occupied, get him into the garden, get him earning his keep? Well, that's it and start kind of selling at no contact markets or something like that, maybe. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> uh, get him in there. No, it actually is. It started off as, as that, just to get him kind of used to how things grow and if anything, trying to actually try some of the food. Uh, he still doesn't eat a vegetable, but right. at least he kind of, if he's going to be out in the garden digging with his cars, ripping stuff up, I might as well get him to do some work at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, here, son, I bought you a, it's the new one from Tonka. It's a ditch digger. How about you just go straight in the road next to the cucumbers, just all the way to the other <laughs> end of that bed for me, son? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So great to have you on the show, man. And thank you for giving Costa from Gardening Australia a run for his money as far as the beard goes. It's fantastic. Oh, it's getting longer, man. It's getting longer. We're going to find you hiding in a foxhole with Saddam Hussein. I guess, well, the last few pictures I saw of you, mate, I think you're not too far off. <laughs> no, no, I've had to trim it. Uh, Gemma read something online about COVID getting trapped in beards. I've been forced to shave it to just a moustache. Oh, wow. My brother's growing a dirty moustache. 
guys, the other day, I've I've been in, you know, obviously production's on hiatus, so I've been in production non-shaving mode for the last, you know, month. But I went to give Wolfie a kiss on the cheek the other day. About 14 minutes later, his face just erupted <laughs> in this horrible beard rash. And Audrey looked at me and went, you're shaving. It's like, yeah, I know. Trim that. <laughs> Trim that shit. It's either, it's either that you're shaving or how into giving your kid a kiss are you, man? <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I, I shaved. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Yeah, cheers, guys. Adam Fiorentino, ladies and gentlemen. Look at that. Like, when you're him, do you just sing that what you're doing in your day to West Side Story lyrics the whole time? When you've got a nappy, we're changing it now. Like, you, you would, wouldn't you? Sure. Ah, no, I think it's like when you're a professional, like, fighter or something like that. It's like, oh, man, like this is my work. I don't do this for fun anymore. He did, uh, when we, we did a TV show together once and I was doing some uh, vocal warm-ups and he came out and tried to show me how to properly use my diaphragm. <laughs> yeah. Which was right. extraordinary. Painful too. Like I had no idea there was such a strong muscle down there, Osh. A good mate of mine, he was an opera singer. He probably still is an opera singer. And his old teacher used to make him stand in front of the nine foot long Steinway and move the piano using only his diaphragm. Oh my God. So basically stand in front of it, push his stomach up against it. And by breathing in, push the piano along the floor. Push a baby grand with your gut. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. Osh, it's time to induct someone else into the Dad Pod Hall of Fame. I don't think I'm ever going to get there, but the men that we've got in the Dad Pod Hall of Fame, just really, they warm my heart. Well, mostly fictional, but <laughs> still. No, that that's fine. We've got, you know, there's a couple of, like we mentioned last week, Dan Connors in there, which is really good. He's He's been a great dad to have in the world. The Rock was a real one. He's in there. Might as well be a fictional character. Atticus Finch and... You know, even though we are recording this at the time of year, one of my favourite dads that was in the Dad Pod Hall of Fame, up there on the wall, third from the left, Joseph, father of Jesus. Excellent. Like the greatest stepdad of them all. Yeah, well, as a stepfather yourself, you've got something to aspire to, right? I, I need to work on the carpentry, but yeah. <laughs> well, you've got Ikea now. You don't have to worry about being a carpenter. <laughs> this week's induction, I thought I would uh, take us back to 1984 to a seminal science fiction horror film that you may know, The Terminator. Oh. And a certain father who was so committed to his child that he travelled through time in a weird paradox to have sex with his best mate's mum in order to bring about <laughs> the son. We are talking, of course, of Kyle Reese. <laughs> Kyle Reese ends up being his best mate's dad. Yeah, he travelled back in time. Kyle Reese, freedom fighter in the future against Skynet, sent back by John Connor, future saviour of humanity, to protect his mother. Unbeknownst to John, I don't know if it's ever really established that John knew he had to send Kyle back to in order to be born. Did, I mean, John must have known, right? Yes, no, he does. She would have told him. Because Sarah records that little message on the dictaphone at the end, which is like, oh, yeah, this is a bit of a head fuck, but if you don't send Kyle back, you'll never be born. So... Kyle was the one who didn't know that he was going to be a dad, and little did he know he was going to be inducted into the Dad Pod Hall of Fame. He would have been a great dad, you know, certainly when John Connor, who he turned out to be a precocious little shit. <laughs> in T2. In, in Terminator 2, he would have been able to go, son, I will not be bargained with. I will not be reasoned with. I don't feel pity. I don't feel remorse. I absolutely will not stop ever until you take the rubbish out. Yeah. Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> Resourceful and brave, but you've got to worry about the fact that he loves your mum. 
Like, I mean, <laughs> your best mate's in love with your mum. I just don't know about that. It's confusing. It's a one floor. But it's a one floor. Out of all, I mean, I know Charlemagne was a very controversial entry into the Deadpool Hall of Fame. This probably has a little asterisk next to it as well because, you know, it's the first dad that is your best mate who slept with your mum. But still, without him, you wouldn't be born. I'm totally fine with it because of the paradox of it all and also because he also went on to be the only one that survived in Aliens with Ripley. Yeah, as, as Corporal Dwayne Hicks. Yeah, he, he uh, no, poor old Hicksy. <laughs> poor old Hicksy. Kyle Reese, Dad Pod salutes you. Excellent episode, Charlie. Season two, episode two. Already done and dusted. I'm feeling pretty good about season two, Charlie. It's yeah. good so far. Well, we're, we're progressing through this. We've had facts. We've uh, been slightly more informed. We're less sleep deprived in this season. A little bit. Wolf is still deciding to be eating at, at, at three in the morning. So I'm doing a lot more getting out of bed at five o'clock in the morning or 5.30 in the morning lately. So by 10 o'clock, I'm falling asleep after the first act of secession. And then they have to ask Audrey what happened. Well, uh, at least you've got your uh, you've got your home coffee machine. You've got your oh, yeah. bags of sweet, sweet caffeine imported from all different parts of the world. In the next episode, we're going to talk about the actual things that start to change within your partner's body because you may not realize this, but the woman that you once knew is about to literally transform into a almost completely different creature uh, capable of, of growing another human inside of her and delivering that human alive into the world. And there's many things that happen to her body, many things that happen to her, her senses of taste, of smell, the way she feels about things, things that I did not realize. And I am grateful that we're able to make this episode next time to help those men and women out who otherwise would be caught unaware <laughs> like I was. And should we also put the call out to let people know they can contact us if they have any questions or anecdotes or anything like that, Osh? Askdadpod at gmail.com is our email address. It'd be absolutely fantastic. Fantastic to hear from you. And we'll put that out on uh, Instagram as well, which is at dadpodgram. It only took us to episode two to plug <laughs> the interactive element of this show, but that's okay. It's been a while, Osh. We took a long break. <laughs> It took a long... Well, they have babies to be fed and put back to that. And then I'll just get it and then, and then boom. It, I think it's been about three months since we did this. Yeah. It feels like two weeks. Yeah, yeah. We're back, <laughs> we're back in the saddle. Back in the saddle. All right, Charlie. Until next time, go to bed. <laughs>